Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn and I'm here with Matt Leach. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm excited to add another notch of people that we probably should have had on the first season of ADR that we've ever done. Well, we had that list, the mythical list. Ben's on there twice. (laughs) (laughs) He was, wasn't he? Yeah. I remember I found that. Yeah, that was me. So welcome, Ben Miles. Good evening. Good to have you on, man. Amazing to be here. I think, again, you know, since you guys started this, I've been kind of following all the amazing people you've spoken to. So it's a privilege to be here tonight and try to add to that conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. That was nice. That's, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Before we jump into anything, um, I just want to mention Streamtime, who is a major supporter of ours, who have supported us for a long time now and mm-hmm. uh, enabled us to do all the things we've done and get around to all the people that we've been able to talk to. Yep. And we do all our scheduling through Streamtime app. We do. It's awesome. Keeps us on track. Well, the good thing is the mobile app is super easy to use. That is super. You can I use d- it on your train because you live in Whoop Whoop. I, I do live in Whoop Whoop. It's still the same time zone. Is it? Yeah. Wow. Why does it take you so long to get back to me? <laughs> because I see it's you. <laughs> right, Ben, let's talk about you. Ben, this is your life. Fantastic. One of the most <laughs> optimistic people in the Australian design industry, I would say. Always looking at the positive side of any situation. Moved from London to Australia in 2011 when you joined Interbrand. In 2017, you took on the ECD role. And I first met you when you you were pretty much straight off the plane and you joined Agda just to see what was happening in Australia. You were super keen to kind of find out what was what. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was just a fantastic shortcut into the industry. So I, I came straight into Interbrand, met a lot of incredibly talented people who quite quickly were talking about how can we start to try and play more of an impact and have more of a role on the design industry in general. I think at that particular time when I first came, there was actually quite a lot of uh, controversy around Agda in terms of ticket prices. What's the value? What do I get out of it? So we kind of saw that as an opportunity to go, well, how can we get involved? How can we help shift that conversation, have a lot of fun along the way, but also try and bring a load of people with us on that journey? So I want to go back before before we talk about Australia too much, because you studied your Bachelor of Arts in Southampton, yeah? Yeah. And... What I particularly like on your LinkedIn profile, it's got studied Southampton, Solent University, and then it says quickly after it, activities and societies, surf club. That's where I learned how to design, in, uh, <laughs> in the surf club bar. No, not really. I just, I, I love it. That's It kind of says what sort of student you were. It's like, you know, if the waves are pumping, Ben's not to be seen. The reality is that in Southampton, the closest beach is Bournemouth and the waves are never very good and it's freezing cold and there's often ice cubes in the water. So we weren't in the sea that often. We were probably found in the bar more than we were in the sea, but it was still an incredible place to meet some amazing people that I'm still friends with today. Did you walk around with a surfboard though? Uh, on a few occasions, <laughs> and I probably looked like an idiot. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you discovered that he played for like Southampton FC or something like that. That would have been. I mean, do you, That's do you support Ben Miles? That's right. the other Ben Miles. There's <laughs> <laughs> always another one. So, and then from there, so I mean, you, you did that for for three or four years, yeah. and then you quite quickly got. Well, it seems like you quite quickly got a job at Fitch in London. Is is that how it was? It a seamless kind of transition. It was a relatively seamless transition. I mean, I remember when I was at university, I had big kind of hopes of going straight out of university, landing that perfect job and being slightly optimistic about that and being blinded by optimism. The reality was that 
we there was probably a six month period when I moved from Southampton straight to London. I moved into flat with a bunch of friends and my mum at the time said, that's the worst decision I'd ever made because how are you going to afford to do it? And I said, mum, trust me, we'll, we'll make it work. I couldn't land a job. It did take about six months. And in between that time, I started working in a fashion store in Covent Garden that was kind of surf skate type store. And every day I was kind of like, this is not what I want to be doing with my life. But the more I worked there, the more I started to try and think about, well, what opportunities can I kind of try and do while I'm here? I spoke to the manager at the shop at the time and said, how can I help you sort of think about your brand a little bit more? How can we? And I didn't really know what I was talking about, but I kind of thought, well, let's try and utilize his time, start helping him with his brand and start to try and look at how we can make the, the customer experience right there then a little bit better. Were you using the word brand then at that time? <sighs> I was probably talking about cool graphics and yeah. going, we need to do something I'm on the front window. I'm just trying to think what we used to say before before brand. Like, cool shit. Because like, otherwise you're saying, he's, even if you knew what you were talking about, he'd probably like, what? Yeah. Like, put that surfboard down. You live, yeah, he was like, Ben, you're just trying to get a discount from me, aren't yeah. you? I was like, yeah. <laughs> like, put the coins back on the discount. shelf. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think not, would I have used the word brand back then? I, I, I probably would have just been talking about design, saying, what can mm. we do that's cool? How can we do something that's going to make us stand out a bit more? And I remember the first thing I tried to do was work on the shop window design and give him a load of ideas that weren't probably quite up to scratch, but it still got me, it got my design skills kind of moving forward and I wasn't stagnating while I was in this job. I mean, we talk about optimism quite a bit and optimism quite often gets a bad rap. I, I guess blind optimism, you, you brought up before as well, but I, I think about optimism as being like, like I'm in this situation, so what can I do to make it better? Totally. We're always looking for opportunities. So you can take that analogy in anything you do, even right now, if you're working on a boring project, don't look at it as a boring project. Look at it as an opportunity to show somebody sat next to you, hey, I got a boring project, but look how amazing I've made it. Yeah, yeah. So turning something that can be a negative into a massive positive. And I suppose that's always been what I've kind of tried to do along the journey. So again, after the, the job I had working in that store, my first interview, they asked me, well, what have you been doing for the last six months? And I was able to say, well, funnily enough, I've been working with this, uh, with the shop that I worked in to help them try and make their brand better. And again, mm. whether I was using the word brand, who knows? But it was trying to be on the front foot to always be doing what I'm passionate about, which is design. Mm. Yeah, and it's cool. And it's also not, well, I was, I was working in the shop and I was waiting for this opportunity to arise where I could use all these skills that I was passionate about. It's like, I'm just literally hungry for it, totally. like looking for it at any opportunity and whether or not it, it works or doesn't work. You're just continually moving and doing stuff. And I think people, like everyone's looking for people who really care about what they do. Mm. And you know, everyone can have an awesome portfolio, but not everybody can be as passionate as that person next to them. So if you're going into a situation showing how into something you are, people pick up on that. And I think that's what got me my first job. My portfolio is okay. But it was, I think it was the energy and the enthusiasm for wanting to be a part of something. So you get the job at Fitch and you're there for about five years or so. How did, how did Australia sort of come out of that? So my now wife at the time is my girlfriend. So I met her in London. She's from Australia. We were uh, two separate story. house pies. Classic tourism Australia. Yeah. Exactly. Quick plug. And we met each other in London. We lived in East London at the time. After about four years, she said, hey, let's go back to Australia. 
I was slightly worried about going to Australia. I didn't really know what to expect. Some good surfers here. You That's thought, it. oh yeah. no, exactly. it's pretty big apple at Southampton yeah. <laughs> Surf Club. Once a year in the surf. <laughs> Nobody knew how good I was. It was easy to say I'm good. Um, and it all went downhill from there. Uh, no, it didn't. It absolutely changed my life for the better. And before I left, I tried to experience as many different design companies as possible before I left to really get a taste of different places. Because I think in the back of my mind, I already knew that we were probably gonna stay in Australia. So I wanted to hit as many places as possible, see things from different perspectives. So I could come to Australia and go, cool, I've seen enough of London and now I'm ready for the next chapter. Wow, so how, how did you do that? Did you try to, to work with them? Did you try to just visit people, meet people? I had a hit list of places that I wanted to, to work at mm. and finished up Fitch after five years, which I think in all honesty, as much as I had the, such incredible experience at Fitch, I think five years in your first job is probably a bit too long because you start to fall into your comfort zone versus going, right, cool, now it's time for a change and shift gears and see how other places work. So yep. left there, straight into freelancing, worked on my portfolio, really kind of spent a lot of time getting into something that I was proud of and then went and visited as many different studios as possible and landed some really interesting places that I worked at and saw the best and the worst of how to do things. I really want to know what the worst was. I think the worst is just seeing how unorganized and disorganized and how stressful certain environments can be. So for me, when I because I grew up in Fitch, so it was my first job out of university, you suddenly realize how you're part of the team. You know, mm -hmm. when you start a company, you're sort of, you're handheld through that experience. And then when you're removed from that and you jump into something new, you're seeing things from the outside and you see processes that aren't necessarily working, but you don't have a voice there. So you have to try and fit in and try and fix things. And you either decide to just do the job or swim against the current and that can create friction. But ultimately, if you wanna try and do something great, you're trying to push things to be better. Mm. And that's that optimism kind of coming through again, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And probably back then, there was more of this kind of like optimism that was more about, we can do this, I can do this. And again, you know, over the years, it's become a bit more, rather than just be optimistic, it's how can we be realistic? How can we be uh, an optimistic realist who can see the positives, but try and figure out smarter ways of getting there? An optimistic realist. Explain that a little bit more. Once upon a time, I think I was just optimistic. And I think that's, that's really helpful and it can really kind of keep pushing you forward. But sometimes you need to have a bit of a reality check and go, if I'm just going to be optimistic, am I really kind of thinking about how to do this in a smart way? Yeah, I think that's why optimism gets put down sometimes because the, the optimist comes in and goes, we can do all this and do this. And they do stuff and then there's no sort of structure there or base to kind of keep it going. And it kind of just dies. As soon as that person moves, it kind of it goes as well. And I think that's, that's kind of what I feel like I've learned over the years is that as I suppose as you develop in your career, you start to, your role starts to shift. And it's about, I'm not just thinking about myself, I'm thinking about all the people in the team and thinking about the intern to the senior designer, to the strategist, to the experienced designer and figuring out if I'm just blindly optimistic, I'm expecting everybody just to come on this journey with me versus actually stepping back and going, hey, we can be optimistic, but let's be realistic about the mission ahead and how we're gonna get there together barely just touching on kind of like hiring and getting your job and everything. And now you, you know, in a situation where you're managing people and everything, you said five years too long in your first job. Is that something that you think is true today for juniors? And is that something that you think about for people coming into work for you at Interbrand? Do you think, cool, this is your journey, one, two, three, four, five years. And then that's about when you should probably move on to a different organization. 
I think it really depends on what the company's doing. So if the company stays in the same gear for that five years mm. and it's the same people, then possibly that's too long. But if you're working for a company that, say, every year or every two years or every three years, reevaluates its direction as a business and shifts gears itself naturally, which, to be honest, the best companies do, then I think it's fine to stay there as long as you're still learning. As soon as you feel like you're not learning, then you are in your comfort zone, mm. which is mindfully brilliant. But is it pushing you to kind of reach that next step? So I think, again, as long as the company's shifting with you, then you can stay there for as long as you feel like you're progressing. So you come to Australia. Did you have the Interbrand job before you arrived? So I literally got off the plane and I think I had plans. I think like most people that come from overseas think blue skies, oceans, surfing in warm environments. I was really excited about actually just taking it easy for a couple of months and easing my way in. Got a phone call from Richard Curtis at the time who gave me a call and said, hey, Ben, we just heard you've landed. Do you want to come in and chat to the <laughs> creative directors at the time? Who was uh, Mike Rigby and Chris McLean. I didn't know who they were. I knew who Interbrand were at the time. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I had preconceived ideas of what I thought Interbrand was. I turned up, walked into the space, which is an old cinema, one of uh, Sydney's first cinemas. So the space was brilliant. I walked in, I was like, wow, this is a cool space. Went and met with Chris and Mike. They took me out for a coffee. And the first thing they started talking about was, we're on a mission to decorporatize Australia. And I was kind of hooked. I was hooked in that first session. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. As anybody that's ever met Chris and Mike, they're very infectious characters. Yep. And so I was kind of drawn into that mission. I was excited by the energy. It felt very different to what I thought Interbrand was all about. The team was growing rapidly and I wanted to be a part of that. It felt like a, a really wonderful group of talented people who were on a mission. That's great. What was your perception of the design industry in Australia coming from the UK? If I'm, if I'm really honest, I, I hadn't really had the time to think about it. Yeah. We had to do so much before we left. I was busy working, immersed in a project. So I'm always kind of all in. So when I'm into work, I'm kind of surrounding world starts to become a bit foggy. Before I knew it, managed to get my visa, which was incredibly stressful. I was on a plane, I was in Australia and I was here and I didn't really know a huge amount about it. And that's why, again, I got that phone call, met the guys and was like, wow, well, this sounds cool. Let's go for it. And then I guess after that, like you've landed and then you're starting to get involved in Agnar. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but, you know, what was your I'm always interested in what people think when they first kind of get to Australia and start feeling, OK, now I'm part of this industry. Like, what was it like? Like, was it starkly different to the UK? Was it very much the same? It felt a, a bit smaller in terms of it, you had access very quickly to the, some of the key people. So the people that were really passionate about design, it was quite easy to kind of subtly get to meet all those people. And sometimes, again, with London, there's so much, there's so many layers, there's so many histories, it's so big that it takes a lot longer to, to meet people, chat to people, find the person you're trying to seek down to chat about something. Whereas in Australia, it all felt so much easier to kind of meet those key people. So I, I felt this kind of energy straight away of, of, I feel like when, when I landed, there was a real energy around Australian design scene where Australia, the Australian, especially Sydney design scene, just felt like everybody, every agency was on a mission to try and say, hey, this is Australia and we're doing incredible work. Yeah, I think, I think definitely around that time, there was a real almost nationalist kind of idea behind the design of like sort of like standing up and saying, hey, we need to be more accepted or more 
the world to have more awareness of what was happening here. Totally. And I think it fed into the, it was quite competitive. If I think back to it as well, there was healthy competition between the different agencies, which was driving everybody to go, hey, look how great our work is. You had the Frost, you had the Rees, you had the Interbrands, all kind of kind of healthily competing against each other, but that lifts everybody's game. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you had this amazing amount of output of work that I think the whole world was suddenly like, wow, there's a lot of cool stuff coming out of Australia. Mm. And I felt really proud and I still feel really proud to be a part of that because I think for a, for a small population, we punch way above our weight in the kind of bigger players. Talking about that, when you joined Interbrand, that was kind of the Stand Apart kind of era, wasn't it? Yeah. So explain what Stand Apart was. So Stand Apart at the time was uh, a reference geographically to we stand apart to the rest of the interbrand network in terms of we're on the, the end of the world. But it also meant that we exist to create stand apart work. So there was a really high bar set in terms of if you work at interbrand, we are setting out to do the best work we possibly can. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard work. We're going to put serious amounts of effort into it. And that was really the message. We used stand apart at the time to be a recruitment tool as well. So you had your kind of main interbrand global website which was great, but it was probably more on the corporate side. And then we used ours as being a little bit more radical and sent out the message to the type of people and the type of culture we were all about. So I guess the, the Australian office, at least at that time, seemed a little bit like it could do things that no one else could do in the interbrand kind of worldwide. Is that right? Yeah, I think that we took advantage geographically of, of Stand Apart, the fact that we were kind of a long way away from everybody else, which gave us a little bit of distance, which was really useful. It meant that we could kind of go hard on what we wanted to do. And again, to kind of echo Mike and Chris's sentiment at the time, which was to decorporatize Australia. That's exactly what we wanted to do. We wrote an amazing manifesto on the wall that really broke down what Stand Apart meant. So everybody that joined knew exactly where we were going and what we were trying to do. And ultimately it meant doing incredible work that was equal parts logic and magic in terms of doing incredibly creative work, but really founded in strong strategic thinking. Decorporatize Australia. Can you explain a little bit more about what that meant? I think at the time you only had to look around at some of the big corporations and see how stiff and straight and corporate a lot of those brands were. And I think, um, it meant that there was a massive opportunity to to try and um, get in there and shift gears of a lot of these companies. We had a huge opportunity with Telstra. Telstra was incredibly corporate at the time. It was the world of blue and orange. It literally was a blue and orange brand, yeah. and that was it. Mm. It had no personality. It was schizophrenic in its communication. And we came in, we got the opportunity to pitch on a project, and we're able to introduce the world of full color, which you know, have, you've seen that legacy for the last eight years, constantly kind of create different variations of the brand. So we, we, we talk about iterative variations of the brand. So 1.1, 1 1.2, 1 1.3, and they, 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 they've been an amazing client that's kind of gone on that journey. So again, I think that's an amazing example of a corporate brand that started to understand how to be a more human brand and actually just talk to people, how normal people talk to each other. How do, how do you think they get into that situation? Is it, is it just because times are good, so there's no need to kind of reflect? or And it's only when maybe competitors come in that they kind of realize they need to do something different? Yeah, I think it's definitely that. Looking at the world and looking at 
across across the world and seeing how other huge brands are starting to work, but also that the world was starting to change. People were starting to change how people communicate, different technologies, text messages, messaging, realizing that you don't have to write a stiff email in a way that sort of speaks in a very stiff way, that you can actually modulate your tone and speak to somebody how normal people speak using really friendly communication. I mean, that was a massive change for Telstra was literally, hey, you don't have to write really boring, stiff communication. You can laugh and smile and empathize with people. And again, communication was a huge part of what they started to shift, but actually just becoming a very human brand. It was a pretty amazing turnaround because I think Telstra was a bit of a joke at that time and in the sense that they were you know, if you were over 60, you probably went with Telstra, but anyone else wouldn't probably look at them. Totally. There was a there was a bit of a joke at the time where um, somebody in a meeting told us that sometimes um, kids, if they were on Telstra, would say to their friends they're on another network because it sounded cooler. <laughs> oh, wow. And that was, again, a bit... Is that of, like a real insight? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Had? That's not a joke, right? That's amazing. And I think that for us, it gave us the fuel to go, well, let's change that. Mm. How do we become a brand that actually people want to be associated with. And we, we talked a lot about pre-2011, the brand spoke in one gear and they had their, their two colors. And we wanted to introduce all the colors, which rich, literally represented the diversity of Australia and enabled us to just kind of change the tone of how we communicate. And that meant that one of the things we did at the time was introduce the color pink. And we had in meetings, people would stand up and say, we're never going to have pink in our brand. <laughs> mm -hmm. And after a while, it was everybody went, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, we're going to have pink in our brand. <laughs> and that was talking about, if you think about big corporates, that was how big corporates at the time were like, oh, yeah. well, aren't we going to alienate people if we have pink in our brand? It's ridiculous. We mm. live in a modern world. So again, I really think Telstra was one of the big brands at the time that was really brave and going, hey, we can do things differently. I mean, if, if I think about Interbrand at the time, in all the kind of amazing stuff that was happening within the design industry at that time, they felt brave in the sense that they were kind of pushing things a little bit further than everyone else. And I guess I keep on coming back to it, but it, it kind of felt like you were you're off the leash a little bit from the, you know, the, there was Interbrand, which was the big global, but then there was Interbrand Australia that was kind of allowed to do whatever it wanted to do. Yeah, and I think, again, that's all down to the people. I think it was a bunch of people on a mission to go, hey, we can do things differently. We can do awesome stuff and we can have a serious amount of good fun at the time. I think that period was such a unique period where there was so many incredibly talented people from all around the world that just almost happened at one time to be in, this, in, in the right place at the run, right time for all this kind of tension, positive and negative that really led to just kind of pushing the boundaries. And I suppose that's why I'm still there because that energy that legacy is still absolutely part of who we are today. But of course, over the years, we've shifted gears. We've changed the way we do things. But the one thing that's remained completely constant is doing incredibly creative work with purpose, but most importantly, that is effective design that leaves companies better for the work that we've done. We're not just trying to create beautiful work that wins awards and uh, and p makes people smile we're trying to create work that does that of course but leaves businesses better in the long run you've talked about before that there's kind of three horizons which i love but three horizons of interbrand so the first one would have been the kind of stand apart and then uh, interbrand merged with ddb 
Yeah, so when I, when I started in 2011, they were already part of DDB, so yeah. part of one big group. So it's Interbrand, part of the collective group, which is DDB. So the first iteration, so um, phase one, horizon one, was, again, our mission, decorporatize Australia. So that was probably for about three or four years. After that, big shift, big change, lots of people left, and it gave us an opportunity to rethink who do we want to be for the next few years. And again, I talked at the beginning around staying with companies who constantly shift gears. And so the credit of Interbrand and all the different people that have been involved, that's been something that's been really true to, to, to the philosophy is shift gears every few years. So the second phase of Interbrand was moving into more of a design thinking phase where we really kind of use that as an opportunity to explore and make a lot of mistakes, make a lot of headway, hire a lot of different types of people with different backgrounds and different experiences. And we use that as an opportunity to really kind of figure out what we could be, where could we go? And it was a challenging time because it was such a different process. It was such a different philosophy, but it really set us up to kind of do things differently. It was a quieter period in terms of the output of Interbrand because we were so busy working on new things, new projects, new processes, trying things. And I think that in that period, we learned so much from that. And it set us up to do some incredible projects that are very different to the type of work that we did in the previous few years. It's cool. I like it. Um, there's so many quotes that I, I keep thinking, shift gears every few years. This rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. I want to actually take us back um, when you were talking about the, the dynamic of Interbrand at the time. Many of these people, and I won't even bother rattling off the names because we'll be here all night, have been on our podcast or have been part of our lives as well. You remind me that often we'll find out that there was a time at Frost where there were all these phenomenal designers. It's like all these designers, like just about everybody that worked at Frost at that time. If you look at them now, they're all just phenomenal, you know, doing their own thing, famous in their own right. Moon was one of those places. And I think Interbrand in Sydney was one of those places. And, um, you know, our experiences with Sydney, so I can't talk as much about other states and, and cities and things like that. But it is so interesting. And I often wonder if it attracted all those people to Interbrand at that time or if it was something about what was happening at that time that helped amplify those careers? Like, is there something about having all these amazing people in the room that it just bumps everybody up? 100%. I think there's no doubt about it that that period of time, and I can only talk from my perspective, which is that you have this science experiment of people with so many different views on the world, some challenging, some positive, some protagonists that are trying to shift things. And it's so interesting to see all those different people in a room and everybody's sharing and learning from each other. And a bit of a kind of yes, we can mentality, which is what I felt when I came to Australia was that this was a place where people feel like, yeah, we can do this. You know, we, we really care. We give a shit about what we're going to do and we can do this. So, yes, I think there was so many talented people that I still to this very day feel incredibly fortunate enough to have worked with. I, I think I've worked with some of the best creatives in the world and I hope that what I've learned from them I'm able to share with people that I work with now that, and I'm learning from new incredible people. Then I think that's the thing that's been amazing is that Interbrand's always attracted the best talent in Australia. So the type of talent that we attract now is very different to what we attracted back in 2012, 13, 14. But all of those people join because there's something about Interbrand. There's something about that energy. There's something about it being a place where you have freedom to do what you think is right. There's space to try new things. And how, how do you get that space across? I mean, is it 
is it extra time on briefs or is there like time to kind of work on personal projects or you know what what how does that boil down to actually a kind of day-to-day thing as it is an incredible question because i think in the first phase of interbrand there was we'd won telstra there's a lot of revenue coming in which gave people the freedom at the time to work on other projects. It gave people, we were able to take on a lot more pro bono work. We were able to work on passion projects, which in its very self created even more enthusiasm, even more energy, even more attraction to other designers to want to be a part of that. Then we moved into phase two, where it was again, more of a, a more opportunity to have more space. That period of Interbrand was an incredible opportunity because we had put, in, in some ways, too much space. We were able to explore so much that sometimes we create incredible projects and solutions, but were they as efficient as they could have been? Possibly not. I would never go back on that time because mm. it gave us so much opportunity to learn. So the space was there to push boundaries, to make mistakes, to learn from new people. And then in where we are now, we've shifted gears again, which is around how can we do that, but be incredibly efficient? So the biggest shift over the last couple of years is how can we still create that space, but make sure that everybody's really accountable for what they're doing. So the biggest change is that every single designer at Interbrand now thinks incredibly creatively, but they also think through the lens of a business. So they're able to be more accountable for their hours, which means that they're more in control of how they spend their time. So they're efficient. They can speak to clients about how much time they've got, how they're going to maximize the spend of that project to create an incredible result. So the shift now is this kind of this merging point of creativity with business smarts. And that's been the most fascinating experience. And that's because we've got a new CEO called Nathan Birch, who's come from a Deloitte digital background, KPMG. He comes from a very much consultant background. So he's tried to blend the consultancy model with more of a creative agency, which has created this really interesting merging point that's pushing us into new 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 frontiers really so it's more of a transparency for what everyone kind of understands i guess how their time what, what their time is worth and therefore what they can put into a project and budgets and all the rest of it yes i reckon i could get i think every single designer at interbrand could now go and just set up their own design agency because they understand exactly how a business works mm. something that throughout my career and over the last kind of 15 years, quite traditionally, created are creatives. Hey, I'm too creative to worry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which I'm one of those people, yeah. you know, I would have gone, hey, I'm too, you know, don't worry about that. Somebody else will worry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. And the biggest shift is going, hey, if you think about the smarts plus the creative, that's where the magic happens. Matt is, you know, figuratively leaping out of his seat at the moment <laughs> because ever since I've ever worked with, with Matt within education, he's always been like, why don't we just try to replicate the real world as much as possible? Like, why don't, why don't students come in with timesheets and have to like track their time and put a value next to their money and all that sort of stuff? So you excited yeah, no, about no. it? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's the one thing that um, industry constantly tells education that the, the thing that new graduates, junior designers don't have is an understanding of business. And, but they're always ignoring that they, they have all these creatives working for them already who don't understand business either. And so it feels like you've really, you've grabbed that and gone, right, let's fix it. Well, yeah, I think that traditionally my background is ideas. Ideas are everything. Yeah. You know, get in DNAD, which I'm a massive fan on. What's the big idea? What's that thing that's gonna make the world smile? Well, half the time it doesn't make the world smile. 
it makes creative smile because they're like, that's really smart. <laughs> Which again, I'm a massive fan of, but in the real world, people are saying, how can you make my business more effective? How can you make me more money? How can you help me communicate with a different type of audience? How can you help me develop a new product? So if you start to think about that, it's less about the big idea. However, I think it's incredibly important, which I can come back to later. It's about, we're living in a world where timelines are shrinking. Automation is an everyday occurrence, which means everybody has to be faster. Everybody has to be smarter. So you can't just live in a world and go, hey, we're just going to come up with big, crazy, creative ideas. We have to be realistic. We have to go, how do we do that, but actually match the cadence and pace of a project? How do we help you go to market as quickly as you need to go? How can we help you develop that product? So you have to create that sweet spot. So this is coming back to the optimistic realist again. I think so. Yeah. And it's that power of, again, if we talk back to the different iterations of Interbrand, we had the hardcore kind of creative brand idea focused, mm. decorporatize Australia. Mission. Then yeah. we had the human-centered design thinking era, which was let's just be big and try and fix the world and all the problems. And then we've got actually, there was something great about both of those. How do you create a sweet spot? You can't just be this big, bold, creative agency. And you can't just be this kind of super kind of one track design thinking direction you've got to find that sweet spot and that's where we're landed right now so is that the third horizon i'd say so yeah it's about brand experiences so how can you put the brand at the heart and look at how that affects absolutely everything from the people the product to the process yeah. now you've also had a, a recent merger as well within it with another company can you talk anything about that yeah, there's been a merger with C-Space, which is um, based in Boston and they're beyond Boston. And they're a, a customer-first business, which uses design insights and data-driven insights to drive solutions for customers and for businesses. So we've got the power of Interbrand, which is the, 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 obviously the creative and the brand and the strategic direction now mixed in with C-Space, which is that data insight-driven philosophy. So we can bring those two, we can draw on the data, we can draw on the insights to make sure that everything we're doing isn't just, again, based on hypotheses or different things that we think sound like a great idea. We can actually back it now based on research and data, which gives you a much more compelling conversation when you move in and talking to the C-suite. So I'm trying to understand how, because for your workforce, um, you know, you've already made that big leap to kind of understanding business and understanding how the money and the time work together. This feels like another leap bringing in data. Totally. I mean, if you want to create transformation and business transformation and effective design, you can't just, it can't be assumption based. Mm. We can't be walking in and saying, oh, we think you should do this because it sounds like a great idea. It's got to be, hey, we've done the research. We've got the insights. We've, we've, done it, we've spoken to thousands of people and this is what they're talking about. This is what they're saying. So, hey, this is what we've got to do. So it's really drawing on all those different elements to create, again, effective solutions. Is that a change in the, in the client's expectations, as in that they need more proof? I think we're definitely seeing the impact of data. You know, it's, of course, it's a, we live in a world where every single action, interaction is being noted. So... Being able to utilize and draw on that information, it's almost the norm. And anyone that's not doing that isn't necessarily utilizing what's out there. So again, now we have that as part of the business, we can draw on that to make sure what we're doing isn't just assumption-based and we can make sure we're gonna create something that's really gonna resonate with the audience. Has that been a pretty steep learning curve 
finding out the best way to work together as these two businesses? Because data and especially big data is like I've touched my toe into that area and I'm like, okay, that's that's way too deep. No, I think it's a really good question. And I think that's the power of who we are and where we've come from, mm. especially in Australia. We are such champions of creativity. So we're able to, again, use that advantage of the stand apart nature and go, we're over here. We'll take the best of everything we can. So we're, we're us. We are a creatively driven organization that will just utilize anything we can to create something that's going to cause impact and create radical change, essentially, is what we're trying to do. So I would say that because of our geographic location, because of who we are and where we're positioned, we just take the best of whatever we, we can and we make it work for our version of Interbrand. Now, before you were talking about probably the, the sort of second phase, which was a, a very uh, explorative kind of phase and design thinking and and you said there was a lot of kind of like delving into you know, trying to help, I guess, design change the world, which I know is a term that you're not incredibly comfortable with. When I started design, you know, there's a lot of talk about design can change the world. And I think it's a hugely sweeping statement. And of course it can, but it can play a part. It's not necessarily the one thing that's going to shift something, but it can play a role. And I think that's what I've kind of come to terms with is that it's about playing a part. It's a cog in the wheel. It's the sum of all parts. It means that if you use design to break down and communicate and change the conversation and help push something along, then that's exactly what I think design can do. But it has to be part of a bigger conversation. Mm. Which leads me on to, because we really want to talk about gay mate. It seemed to be such a a big kind of uh, shift shift from, I guess, what you expect a, a, a studio like Interbrand to do. Um, but then it also, it was perfectly timed and it, it made a massive splash. Yeah, I'd absolutely love to talk a bit more about that because I think for everybody, for a huge proportion of the population last year, it was the number one conversation for everybody. Yeah. And um, for us, it was something that internally that we we really wanted to be a part of. We didn't just want to sit on the fences. We actually wanted to try and create a bit of impact. And that really that really stemmed from um, quite a lot of different things at the time about us wanting to make sure that we were working on big corporate clients, small boutique design clients, but then also doing stuff for good, design for good, mm. using our tools to actually try and make a difference. And I think we went to, um, obviously there was a huge amount of noise. There was the, the no vote at the time for marriage equality was uh, incredibly well funded. So there was a lot of backing and a lot of negative press. And we went to a, a march slash talk um, by, by quite a few people. But one of the speakers who was heavily involved in marriage equality was Tiernan Brady. And he um, basically did an incredible, incredible talk around why everybody needs to try and get involved and play their part. And for those of you who haven't heard his speech, I'd go online and I'd listen to it because it sent shivers up my spine at the time when I was stood in mm. the crowd. And literally what he said was that that essentially that we're not doing this just for the people who are alive right now and standing here right now. We're doing it for people that haven't even been born yet. Mm. And, and what side of history do you want to go down on? And those simple words literally just sent shivers down. I think everybody in the crowd and everybody stood up and wanted to be a part of it. And he also talked about 
that that people need to phone their friends, phone their grandparents, and actually do anything they can to make a difference. And that really drove a lot of us to go back to the studio. We'd spent a lot of time. It was part of the conversation where we were so, on the bosses. So were you there with other people from the studio? Yeah, there was like a few of us. Like this was like an interbrand school excursion? Yeah, there was a few of us who had already started to take an interest in it, and we'd yeah. headed down there. And we went along to the march, got inspired, went back to the studio, and sat down as a team and thought, well, what are we, what are we going to do? What are we going to do next? How can we get involved? Mm. We often run really fast, sharp ideation sessions where we have a point. Um, we have a, a how might we question? What are we trying to solve? And we'll sit down and we'll rapidly ideate and sketch as many ideas as possible in a short amount of time. We did that with about 10 of us. And every single person in the room was coming up with as many ideas as possible. And we sat down. You, you have a minute per idea. And you, you, you pump out as many in eight minutes as possible. We went around the room, everybody stood up and presented their different ideas. And Nick Rodeno at the time had sketched out this little idea that was gay mate. And mm. we all paused for a second. Every single person in the room was like, wow, hold on. There's something in that. That's amazing. Let's not just kind of put that in the pile. Let's pause, stop, and let's focus on what that actually stands for. So at the time, it was just a super nice idea. We all started unpicking it. And we were like, by removing, removing the D is literally like, Australia, are we missing something? Mm. So as soon as such we... a good tagline, like that's just so good. I know it's more than a tagline, but even just seeing it as a communication device by it, just sitting by itself with nothing around it is like really, really great. And that's where the magic happens. And I think for us as a team, we we had the we had the start of an idea, and then when we started thinking more deeply about it, turning that into a conversation, a straight talking campaign where we ask Australia, are we missing something? And I love, when I talked about it earlier, about big ideas are so important, but you can't live or die by a great idea. It's about what happens next. Mm. There must be millions of great ideas that live inside top drawers of, of people's design cupboards that have never gone that extra mile because there hasn't been enough people to get behind something to make it a reality. So once we had that idea, it was a huge roadmap ahead of us to go, okay, cool, now what? What are we going to do? This isn't a paid project. We're doing this because we give a shit and we want to be involved in this. So the next sort of three to four weeks was an absolute mission. It was probably one of the hardest projects that any of us have ever done. Yeah. We didn't want to just come up with a nice idea and go, ha, oh, aren't we clever? It was much more, no, we want to create a bit of impact. We want to be part of this and we want to bring people on that journey with us. So we did what we could. We begged, borrowed and stealed. We phoned as many people as possible. We called favors. We spoke to clients, big giant corporations to help fund the campaign and get involved. We worked with one of the top four banks who helped fund it. We also worked with Cotton On Group who wanted to help from a, to provide us the, the products to help us bring this to life through t-shirts to put the slogans on and help with the march. So it was an incredibly fascinating experience. There was so much we had to do, so many logistics we had to make, but most importantly, keep the team pumped to want to be involved, to dedicate their own mm. time to make this happen. And that's the hardest part sometimes with design is you need people who are passionate enough to give up their personal time to go above and beyond on certain projects. Yeah. Did you get any backlash from any of the team or anyone that like wasn't particularly motivated or interested or Every was it an infectious kind of thing? We had We had the the classic conundrum of paid work versus yep. pro bono work. Yep. So every single person was passionate about it and wanted to be involved. 
but the hardest part was juggling it around paid work and non-paid work. Mm. So, of course, we gave up a lot of free time. We gave up a lot of weekends. I had a young child at the time, and I'd have to keep convincing my wife that it was worth it because who knows mm. where they're going to be in 20 years' time, and I want to be part of that story for good, yeah. and not just me, the entire team. So we gave up weekends. We marched. We went on the street. We handed out flyers to help um, help people understand the process to be eligible to vote. We had people shout at us, scream at us. Yeah, this is the this is the story that you you told me. Um, I think second or third time that we saw each other that really kind of impacted it to me because suddenly it's you know it, it it gets out of Instagram like it becomes real. And you were telling me that you know you are out there doing your thing and you know with 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 your opinion and standing up for what you believe in, and then suddenly you're being yelled at and you're like, wow, I'm not a designer with this team. I'm I'm standing up for this political and, you know, social thing that I believe in. And suddenly you're you're in the thick of it, like you're in the trenches. Yeah. And it's a really challenging situation to be in because, of course, everybody's allowed their own opinion. Right. I'm not there to, we were never there to say, mm. you are wrong, we are right. It was much more, we're here to help change the conversation mm. and have a straight talking campaign that says this is un-Australian. G'day, mate, is something that's fundamentally Australian, that's a welcoming message to all Australians, regardless of race, regardless of gender. So for us, that was the message we were trying to get out there, is to think about this, guys. This is un-Australian. So when we were on the street level handing out flyers with the slogan and, and the steps to, to be eligible to vote, of course it attracted a lot of attention. Yep. And we had one lady in particular who was extremely vocal in this is outside UTS and it was quite intimidating because you know again you're there you're just trying to do your bit like I said we weren't trying to say that you're wrong we're right we're just saying let's think about it look at it from this perspective she was very confronting mm. she was almost like speaking to to somebody who who just looked at the world through such a different lens that it didn't really matter what I said she was never going to agree with me mm. and in the end you just have to reason with these people, try and change the conversation and give them as much counter argument as possible. But ultimately, some people, you're never going to be able to change their perspective. Yeah, definitely. But of course, that's a small minority and we weren't going to give up. So for us, we, we hit the streets. We helped um, help people understand what they needed to do to be eligible. And then the next step was to start to build the T-shirts, do a photo shoot, build a campaign around people who different views on marriage equality in general. Why should they vote yes and get as many different perspectives as possible? We asked, um, we got people, we got mums and dads involved with children, a part of the LGBT community. We had people from all different backgrounds come, different races to show their support, wear the Gay Mate t-shirt and stand up and actually put their face to a poster. So even that was quite a big thing to get people mm. to, this was a poster campaign that went across entire, all across Australia. So people were putting themselves on the line again to say, I believe in this. I am for this. Mm. And you're asking people to put themselves up for criticism, whether they work for a corporate corporate um, corporation that might not be having a view on this. You're asking people to put their belief at the front of who they are. So that was a really amazing thing for us. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing project. Like the Nick Rodeno shout out in there because he's been on the podcast before. So yeah. what's up, Nick? And he's amazing. Clearly. Great designer, clearly. Um, we'll, we'll share a link as well to, to that speech, the marriage equality speech. I actually haven't seen it, so that sounds really great. I like how uh, energized you get um, when you talk about it. It does stir me up. It, it, it really does because like for, 
I think what gets all of most designs out of bed, like we've talked about before, is where you can use design for good. Yeah, definitely. and I feel very privileged that we've been doing this for a long time. We know how to communicate to people. Ultimately, that's what we do. We try and we talk about communication. So if we can start to use our tools to communicate, to change the conversation, to give people the tips and tricks about how to talk to their mum and dad about something, which is exactly what we we're trying to do, then why not do that? Mm. It's amazing, and it's really, as I mentioned earlier. It started off as being a bit of a juggle between paid work and non-paid work, but the, but in hindsight, because of the energy and everybody getting so passionate about this, our business has gone. Let's do more of this. How do we、mm. use design for good and put it at the heart of who we are? That's fantastic. Oh, there's、um, probably some more campaigns like that coming in the future. Then there could well be. So we're getting towards the end of the episode, but we were talking really briefly about another project with Prince Akatoki. I'll go into a bit about Akatoki and what Akatoki actually means because it's、right. two words fused together. Oh, okay. But ultimately, this has been such a radical project because we've been give, we, we were briefed by a Japanese company at the Prince Group in Japan, the biggest hotel group in Japan, through another company in Australia called Staywell Group, and they invited us to the table because they wanted a Western approach, a Western outlook on a Japanese brand. And ultimately, what they asked us to do, and what we recommended, is to take the best of Japan to the rest of the world. And the project went from a blank piece of paper, tell us what this should be, to where we are right now. And it's been an incredible example of how to build an ecosystem, a platform that comes from a compelling strategy that started from a CX project where we spent a week in Japan. We went to some of the most interesting Japanese hotels in Japan. We shadowed staff. We spent time listening to customers. We met business players, big corporate business players, to really understand what does Japanese luxury mean. And we built up a huge amount of information. We met some fascinating artisans from all across Japan, and we learned about the traditions. And one of the things that resonated the most was this idea of waking up in Japan after a beautiful night's sleep in a hotel is waking up feeling renewed. And that led us to creating this brand called the Prince Akatoki. So the name itself is obviously Aka and Toki. So Aka means the red, those hues of poetry at dawn, and Toki means dawn. So we created a name that is Akatoki, which literally means poetry at dawn. And that became the starting point to create this incredible brand. Why I think this brand has been so interesting is because often, as creatives, we come up with a great idea, we hand it over. Again, it comes back to those ideas again. Often, when you work with big corporations, you create the brand, you create the guidelines, you hand it over, and you don't always—you're not always completely in control of what happens next, which、right. is a crazy point in the journey.、Mm. I think there'd be a lot of different agencies that would probably say the same thing: you hand something over, and you hope for the best. Whereas, what we've been trying to do a lot more lately is really be part of the process all the way to the end.、Mm. Working on every different facet of the business. So here we've been starting to look at the interior design, the CX. We've been looking at the digital component. We've been looking at the language. We've been looking at how to bring smells to life. We've been looking at how to bring the sound, designing the soundtrack of what does the Prince Akatoki sound like? What does it sound like when you walk into a hotel? So, creating a multi-sensorial brand that hits every different level. It's the dream job for any designer, and it's again. For me, it's when you build that relationship and trust of a client where they couldn't imagine getting anybody else involved because you, as the guardians of the brand, understand it so well that you can just bring all the experts together. Yeah. So we talked right early on in this conversation about multidisciplinary team and bringing people together. 
And that's exactly what we've done here. We brought the best of CX world to the project. We brought the best interior designers. We brought an international team of writers from Japan, from, from the UK, and back to Australia. So when you get the opportunity to pull on all this expertise, you create incredible, impactful work because you're not doing it in isolation. And I think that's the future model of how you can continue to create wonderful work is, mm. is look outside. Of course, you've got a talented studio, but how can you bring the best people? And it doesn't always happen because it's hard to convince clients sometimes that they need to outsource, they need to bring these people to the table. But that's exactly what we've done. When we were in Japan, we got incredibly inspired by the culture. We met this, um, this artisan who makes Fasuma panels. So Fasuma panels are traditional Japanese doors that redefine a space. Right. Once we met all these incredible artisans and experts, they inspired us. So our brand system that we created is Fasuma panels, which literally redefine a space. So it started off as a design idea. We made those Fasuma panels with the artisan as a test, starting to make things to see how we can move and shift spaces. Mm. That then inspired the interior designers to go, cool, we can take that and see how we can prototype that and make more of that. So we're right now in the process of, of making the rooms, testing things, looking at how the different makeup of our ideas come to life in reality and how customers and guests interact with those spaces has been absolutely fascinating. Oh, it sounds amazing. Is that project live yet? Can we it's, see that or it's coming soon? It's coming soon. So it's nice. going to be live in London. They have plans to open up um, hundreds of hotels around the world. I can't wait to stay in all of them yeah. if that's possible. <laughs> but again, it's as designers, we often live in this world where we create stuff. But when you actually get to interact and see all those different parts to a brand, we talk about brand experience again, where your brand lives at the heart. We talk about people, product and process. So we're designing products. We're looking at fixing the process. So from a CX perspective, when we're redesigning the guest experience, we're literally putting ourselves in the shoes and trying to create incredible experiences that nobody else does. Mm. So even that in itself is a really hard challenge. But when you get the opportunity to go so deep on a brand, you can create something fantastic. That's awesome. I can't wait to see it. And so what's what's next with you guys? Like what... What's an insight into kind of what you guys are thinking about next into brand Sydney? We've got a bunch of really, really exciting projects on at the moment. Again, um, we're working on a design for good project, which is around um, vision impaired and hearing impaired. Mm. And we're starting from the inside out. So we're looking at how can we create a brand that is physical, how we can create a brand that you can hear, you can see, and that it's going to be, again, a, a multi-sensorial project where we'll be using haptics texture, touch, sight, vision, smell, to really aid the navigation and experience from all directions. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on ADR. It's been a pleasure and um, <laughs> apologies for just getting into it and um, never being able to stop. But thank you for your time as well. This has been amazing. Big fans of ADR, big fans of Australia. Couldn't be any prouder of all the different agencies from design to interaction to whoever you are. Let's just keep doing this and keep pushing things forward. That's awesome. I like the shout out at the end. And where can people find out um, more about you? Follow you. Where's the best place for people to uh, check you out? Where's the best place to follow me is um, probably Instagram. Um, I don't, yeah, I try to only put stuff out when it's going to be relevant to some description. I don't probably talk enough about myself, which, you know, arguably in this world is a good thing. <laughs> and it's Ben Miles Away. Is that still? Uh, is that my thing? Ben Miles Away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah ben Miles Away. 
See, That's I remember it. that there off the go. top of my head. Uh, you can find me on everything at Flynn Tracy, and you can find this episode and more at AUSDesignRadio.com, and you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at AUSDesignRadio. Awesome. Well, thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks.